As warrior dads, we got to tackle a lot of things, but tackling low testosterone levels should definitely not be one of them. Uh, we need to keep our testosterone at peak levels, and that is absolutely crucial for all of us. So I'm sure you know all the horrible things associated with low T levels. If you don't, it's definitely not pretty. Uh, it's Google search away. But unfortunately, testosterone levels in men have been consistently decreasing over the last two decades. And it's actually one of the biggest conversations I have to have when working with men, which is why I decided to create the Warrior Dads Testosterone Booster Guide and Checklist. It's a free download. And all you have to do is go to checklist.warriordads.com. Uh, just download it, start, start implementing it, and start to feel the difference. So again, go to checklist.warriordads.com and get your free copy now. Being a dad isn't always easy, but it's the best thing I ever did. I'm constantly improving myself to be the best dad I can be through fitness, nutrition, mindset, and lifestyle. As fathers, we pass on many things to our children, such as our mindset, our habits, our attitude, and what we've learned along the way. Each of these will shape who our children are and who they will become. The Warrior Dad's mission is to help you become the healthiest version of yourself, to hone your edge, and to live with purpose. My name is Jim Bartomey, and this is the Warrior Dad's Podcast. Hey guys, thanks for tuning in for another episode of the Warrior Dad's Podcast. Today, I have my first female guest on the podcast. So this is really exciting. Um, and she has a really, really cool well, she's, she's going to share our book, uh, her book with us, but she has a really cool way of tying in postpartum experience specifically for mothers, but then tying it into fathers as well. And when I got a chance to talk to her before this and learn a little bit about how it ties in, it's really, really interesting and definitely wanted to have her on the show once I found that out. So Jennifer Sommerfeldt. She holds an MA in counseling psychology and is a certified Canadian counselor with over 17 years of experience in maternal health and psychology studies. She's located, located in Edmonton, Canada, and she uses her expertise and voice to advance the dialogue on motherhood and healing. Her deep desire is to inspire women and mothers to discover lasting peace in her hearts, and she is here to talk about her new book called Healing After Birth, Navigating Your Emotions After a Difficult Childbirth. Now, again, I know that sounds more like it's geared towards women, and it is, but there's a really interesting way that that ties in with us men and dads um, that I think you're going to really, really love. So Jennifer, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, absolutely. I am too. Like I said, you're the first female guest, so no pressure. No, none. <laughs> and, and I'm and I'm really like stoked that I am. <laughs> yeah, me too. Me too. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, so, give everybody a little bit of background. So that was a you know I, I mentioned mm -hmm. a little bit in the interview, but there's so much to you um, mm. as you'll be able to share with everybody. Uh, share a little bit about your background and then how um, how you shifted into this field mm. um, kind of from your previous life and then you know what put you on the path to writing this book mm. yeah thanks for that question um, I think it goes way back to my initial studies um, in sports psychology I was uh, in grad school for sports psych after having been a university athlete myself and at that time, um, 
it was it was actually uh, during the Nagano Olympics. So I was working with national level athletes, and I was of the ripe old age of twenty one. Nice. Um, <laughs> what sport? What sport was it? That I was um, myself, or that I was supporting athletes in. Yourself. Uh, I was a fastball player. Okay. Yeah, but my love is volleyball. Is that who you were supporting? No, I was supporting speed skaters and skiers um, coming from Canada. We like the cold. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So anyways, to me, you know, I don't want to get into too much detail about all of that, except I was, you know, I was quite young at 21 to be holding the responsibility of helping people peak perform. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I started to struggle myself with holding that amount of responsibility and stress and started to crash. And that was the real, I would say it's like the turning point where I could identify I was struggling with depression. Um, But I didn't label it as such. It resulted in me actually not completing um, my thesis. And during that time, I accidentally, I guess you could say, got pregnant with my first child. Um, So there was a lot of things happening all at once in which I then removed myself from my studies and focused on this pregnancy, which was so far out of my comfort zone. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, At that time, I'm sorry, I was 23 years old. So it was a two year period there um, where I was in those studies. Um, And so what happened was, I, um, having been an athlete and super invested in the world of sports and the world of athletics, which is very um, male dominated. Um, So even as a female athlete in that world, it it is a very masculine world. And so I embodied the masculine. I actually never really considered myself to be feminine. So there's a, there's an important point to why I'm sharing all of this. (laughs) And so, um, I, when I, when I was pregnant, it was the introduction to the feminine and it felt very foreign for me. Um, but one thing that I trusted in was I trusted in my body. And I think all these years of studying physiology and peak performance and psychology really, um, and also having played at a high level, um, competitive high level of sport, I knew how to train my mind. And so I treated my pregnancy at that time, um, like as an athletic event. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, but what happened at the same time was I started to ferociously read books. Um, I had no idea that I was interested in this topic. So the birth of my son, um, he's now 18 years old and literally a week ago, he moved out of home and out of province. So I'm actually in grief right. <laughs> about my son leaving. Um, but, you know, the, the birth of my son was the birth of my passion. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, interesting enough, uh, he left. And the day I came home from driving him to his new place, my books arrived And which is my next baby. So it was this weird juxtaposition of all of these things coming together at once. Um, So back then, uh, pregnant and started to read these books and um, started to realize that the birthing milieu is a uh, human rights issue. Um, I, I call it a women's rights issue, but a human's rights issue. And I had no idea. I had been so removed from 
the culture of birth because we live in the culture that we live in where it's like unless you're pregnant you have no idea what motherhood's like unless you're pregnant you're not introduced to the world of birth right. it's, it's very separate right and so um, as I started to read I started to see the challenges that well first of all I could face but many many women had faced and I could see the gaps in it and I started to become quite vocal about it and along the way I started to advocate for myself so I went down the traditional route of hiring and uh, well working with um, an OBGYN and you know when I was eight months pregnant I decided to switch teams and I hired some local midwives and all of that was because I was self-directed I was doing a ton of research and I also knew that I wanted to be in the environment in which I felt a most safe in um, that I also felt like I had some control in and that I also knew I could drop into that zone that I'm sure you can relate to as a fitness coach and health coach right so I could drop into that altered state that needs to happen for me to peak perform mm -hmm. um and I had an exceptional birth experience with my first child. Um, I had a four hour labor and delivery, which is quite rare for your first birth. Um, and, and it was Meaning very that's short, right? It's very short. Four yeah. hours is very short. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and so I, I, I applied these, these, these trainings and the ways in which I had trained for, for my athletic career, I applied it to my birth, my birthing experience and I had a positive outcome. That then led me to, um, like I said, the birth of my passion for about 10 years. Um, I didn't stop reading. I didn't stop studying. And I, and I, and I started to attend births. And, and um, this, whole other era, this whole other path started to unfold in the process of me having two other children. So I have three children um, of the ages now of 18, 17, and 13. And I'm not going to get into all of their stories, but just know that they're obviously a big part of my journey. Sure. Um, so I've been I've been in that milieu for, like I said, almost 19 years now. Um, and then prior to that, still in the kind of peak performing physiology, like physiology, nervous system, health, like all of that has been part of my my life experience. So all of that has come together. Um, over these years. And then just recently, I um, finally went back to school after healing from my own PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, um, and then finding my way back to grad school to finally complete that which I didn't complete 18 years ago. So um, what, what about the PTSD that you have? Was that with your first child or? No, I know. And I can kind of get into that and explain how this all wraps up okay. yeah, <laughs> yeah. into why I wrote that book. Um, but my healing journey very much was a pivotal turning point in me being able to offer the, the services that I offer today and create the program, which I created, which is called Healing After Birth. Mm -hmm. And then that led to me writing the book because I realized I just need to get this information out there. Yeah. Um, so that's it in a, in a nutshell. Does that answer your question? It does. <laughs> Absolutely, it does. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's layered. <laughs> um, so, so, so take us, so let's transition to the book then. So what, okay. what was the pivotal point that made you, mm -hmm. that made, that sparked the book idea and mm -hmm. then that journey? Yeah. Okay. Um, 
So I often begin explaining that that there was a book that I read when I was pregnant with my second child. Um, it was called Immaculate Deception by Suzanne Arms. And it's like an old 1970s book I found at a secondhand bookstore. And I was reading it. And as I was reading it, I was enraged. And because it was talking about the practices in which um, basically what it was talking about was obstetrical violence, but it wasn't using those words. And what kind of violence? It's called obstetrical violence. What is that? OBGYN violence. So it's violence that happens to women while they're in labor and delivery. Okay. Okay. And um, that, that term is starting to become more, um, more in the forefront, I would say today than it has been like than it's ever been. Um, And so we are seeing cases of human rights cases um, in which they are um, going after obstetricians for obstetrical violence. Um, So, so going back to, again, this is layered, we can spend forever talking about a lot of these things, but you know, when I read that book, Pregnant with My Second, I think I was 25 years old, I, I was enraged that this kind of care, this kind of violence that was being imposed on women during the most vulnerable times of their life. Giving birth is one of the most vulnerable experiences women are going to experience. Mm-hmm. And that they were being treated in these ways underneath the guise of protocol and safety. And that many of these stories were buried. Because many and this is went, in the delivery room you're talking about, right? A hundred percent. So where are the, you know, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, where are the guys, where are the, where are the dads, the men in this, oh. in this scenario here is like, you know, how are they? Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're standing there watching it and just having to take it or what, like, what are some examples? Yeah. Um, okay. Well, now we're going to go down another rabbit hole. Because... <laughs> <laughs> but this is actually something I don't know. We, we didn't talk about this off air. So oh, this okay. is like, you know, I'm like, oh, okay. You know? Yeah. Okay. So this is exactly why I wanted to be here today. Because this is what dads need to hear. Because they are witnessing, bearing witness to procedures Um again, under the guise of safety and protocol um, that are actually harming and potentially harmful to their wife or their newborn. And so when we, when we witness something that is harmful, something that has um, potentially threatened the well-being and the safety of our loved ones, then we can experience what's called a trauma response. And if we feel like we are paralyzed, frozen, incapable of doing anything about it, incapable of stopping it, then that trauma response is going to be even more activated because now we can't actually engage. We can't fight or flight. Well, we can't leave because we're not going to leave our loved ones. And we can't fight because that could potentially turn into a massive disaster, right? So we are immobilized. And so all of that stress, because that's what's happening, you're having an activated stress response. So all this adrenaline is pumping into your nervous system with nowhere to go. Hmm. Um, Resulting in freezing. And for men, that can be very complicated 
because their instinct will probably be, and I'm generalizing here, and I am referring to men primarily, um, but the, the response would probably be one in which they're confused because their instinct is to want to protect and yet they can't do anything about it. But what they're witnessing is actually for some of them horrifying. So what are some of these things that they're witnessing? So I'm just going to put a trigger warning in okay. because what I'm about to unpack because now we're moving into the world of birth trauma, which is why I wrote the book. Right. Um, it's a great segue. I'm, yeah. And so <laughs> it is. <laughs> um, and what I'm about to unpack could, potentially be um, re-traumatizing for some, especially if there are moms listening and they, they had a traumatic birth experience or they may not even know they did and it's stored in their nervous system and just talking about it is bringing it up for them, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, or for dads who actually did witness something horrifying yeah. but didn't know what to do with all of that information inside their nervous system. Right. So it could be potentially triggering. So, right. and so for, if somebody is listening and mm -hmm. they maybe never got a chance to deal with it or haven't dealt with it, mm -hmm. it may be the, the most helpful way. And, you know, maybe they could just either, I don't know, skip over this part or just kind of take a breath and know that they're safe and nothing's yeah, happening to them right now. I mean, what would you, what would you recommend for that? Yeah, both of those are really good okay. um, suggestions, you know, definitely, first of all, just tune into yourself, like you are the authority of yourself. So just know what's best for you. Um, you know, if you're curious, and you want to keep listening, then yeah, just take a breath, stay connected. And, and if at any point, you're feeling like it's too much, then just take a break, come mm -hmm. back to it. Yeah. How does that that sounds good? Yeah, that sounds good. Um, so you asked me about so give me some examples. So I'm going to give you a personal example. I'm going to start with that um, because, again, this ties into why I wrote the book. Um, I created the Healing After Birth program and was holding it locally um, close to about 100 months of taking this program, and there was some really good feedback. And one day I was holding the story of this one mother's experience, and as she was unpacking her birth story, um, she triggered in me what's called an implicit memory. So there was information about my birth that was um, kind of stored in the unconscious. You know, I hadn't dealt with it. Mm -hmm. And so just being present to her story brought it to the surface. And I was like, holy shit. Of course, what I experienced was traumatic. Mm -hmm. Sorry, can I swear online? Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> and so... Um, so, so the example is such that um, at one point in the um, immediate postpartum of the birth of my third, I, um, and I write about this in my book, um, but I got um, severely, severely sick about two days postpartum. Um, and, and, you know, they were really worried. They weren't sure if I was going to make it. They didn't know what was wrong with me. I checked myself into the hospital. I was um, incredibly dehydrated. Uh, basically, it looked like I had the worst case of dysentery imaginable. Um, you know, I would say I think I had something akin to childbed fever, which is what moms were dying of way back in the day. Um, so I checked myself into the hospital um, with my newborn two-day-old baby and my husband at that time. And we went into the hospital and um, just just to make note, I had given birth at home. So I had no record of being in any hospital. So they didn't know what to do with me. So 
Um, they put me in a room. They know I'm severely sick. Uh, and the doctor comes in and right away starts to shame me to blame me for the birthing decisions that I had made and that I brought this on to myself. So right away, I felt disempowered. Because you from, didn't, because you didn't have the baby in the hospital. That's right. Okay. Um, and started to say things that were totally off the cuff and inappropriate, but you know, like, well, you, this, you've caused this because of herbs you took, or you've caused this because you gave birth in water or you caused, you know? And so, um, yeah, I felt I felt very unsupported, obviously felt disempowered. And still being the strong willed person that I was, I was like, look, are you going to help me or not? Like I am in excruciating pain. I am losing like I, I was losing fluids, like un, unmanageable amounts of fluids. And um, they didn't know what was wrong with me. So anyways, um, here we are vulnerable in pain, more pain than I've ever experienced in my labors. I was in so much pain that I was begging for morphine, which they wouldn't give me. Um, and the doctor came in and just um, aggressively examined um, my very fresh <laughs> perineal area and internal organs um, in the most aggressive way possible and also examined rectally. Um, in which I screamed at him that he needed to stop and that I did not give him consent to do this. And he continued to do it with more force and aggression. My husband at the time witnessed this, which to him would have looked like a rape. Right. And heard me scream no and stop. And he's in the room? In the room holding our, our two-day-old baby. Is this your second child or your first child? This is my third child. Third? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm in pain and I'm crying and I'm screaming and I'm feeling utterly violated and humiliated and shamed and treated poorly because I didn't fit into the mold. And my husband was paralyzed to do anything about it. Hmm. He voiced at one point, did I hear you say stop? And I said, yes. And he said to the doctor, she said, stop. And the doctor ignored him. Wow. So lights out for that dude. Right. <laughs> okay. So you can feel it, right? Just me telling the story. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure anybody, no matter, you know, male or female, as they're listening to it right now, would be like, yeah, that's, that's not going to fly. Right. Okay, so I'm glad that I used this example as even as my personal example, which, like I said, I've woven into the story um, to, to even elicit an emotional response because our adrenaline is activated right now because our instinct is such that if people, if we're being harmed, if we're being oppressed, if we're being, you know, if we're saying stop and somebody's not stopping, we know what that means. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and we want to interject. Yeah. And so men in the milieu of birth, fathers in the milieu of birth, don't know how to intervene because this person is this person of authority. Right. This doctor is coming in to save your wife or your baby. Do you think the fact that you didn't have the baby in the hospital made him angry and then he just started like taking it out on you? I absolutely have assumptions, um, and that's a huge probability. Um, yeah. Again, I can't know for sure, um, but my story is not unique. 
So, you know, I've now been holding mothers' stories of their birth experiences that some of them just perceived as this is normal. I'm just supposed to endure this. And the father's just supposed to watch it happen. Wow, that's horrible. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And this is probably just like, uh, not not that this is minor in any case, but it probably gets worse than this, right? Some of the examples that you probably have to share are just like they get worse than this. I mean, this is bad enough, you know, and just can't even fathom it getting worse. Um, But that's just, I mean, to be aggressive with somebody who's just, you know, have Mm -hmm. just had a baby two days ago. I mean, even just in general, you know, I mean, Mm -hmm. being, being aggressive Mm -hmm. in general, you know, without even having a baby is just uncalled for it. But then, you know, being that unsensitive to, uh, to that person, you know, it's just ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. And, and I'm glad that you have that reaction to it because I think that that's actually an instinctive empathic response to say, that's just horrible. Mm-hmm. And and it is. And that's the response you're having is the response I had when I was 25 years old reading that book, Pregnant with My Second. We know instinctively that it's horrible. And we also know that this kind of behavior has been going on for centuries. Hmm. So that's why I wrote, created the program and wrote the book. Yeah. <laughs> Um, because I thought by studying midwifery, which is what I eventually did, I, I spent eight years studying traditional midwifery. Um, and I thought, you know, if I could practice midwifery, I would be able to save moms and save families. You know, it was very mom focused. It took sure. me a while to see the impact that this was having on dads, right? It's yeah. like, no, this is actually a unit. So what, so, so real quick, so just kind of rewinding mm-hmm. to your story then, cause you're just mm-hmm. saying like the impact that it's having on dads and you said your husband finally, well, your husband at the time you mm-hmm. said, right. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. spoke up and, mm-hmm. and then the doctor didn't do anything. So what That's happened, right. what happened after that? How did it all end? Or did it, did it escalate past that? Or it was just kind of your, your husband was just kind of like, Oh, well, I, I, I tried. So, you know, what's really fascinating is, um, all of this has been coming to, to me over the past couple of years and, and, um, I um, am no longer with um, the father of my children. And so we actually haven't had the opportunity to unpack this story. Hmm. Um, So I've been doing it myself. And so I can't speak to what it was like for him, but I do recall him saying it was horrifying and it was wrong and that he wanted to throw, like he wanted to basically destroy this doctor. I remember in that moment leaving my body. So I was watching myself from above. And if you, if you've spoken to anybody who's had a traumatic experience, that is a common response is to feel like you're watching it happen to you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have heard that. Yeah. And so I did. And I remember imaging um, that like I had enough power to basically kick him in the chest and heart. So he would fly through the walls and like annihilate him. Yeah. You know, so the the force inside of me was there to want to fight back, but the paralysis was such that I couldn't because of the vulnerability of the situation. Um so it's complicated. Right. 
you know, because we are programmed to believe that we need these experts to save us when we're giving birth. And sometimes we really do. Um, so anyways, to, to, to go back to your question, I, I just remember him saying it was horrifying to witness. And I remember seeing, it was almost like I could see his whole system collapse, get really small, hmm. you know, and put his attention on the baby. Right. Which thankfully so. Yeah. To, I mean, you're holding yeah. a two, a two day old baby, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, you're yeah. not going to just, it's not like in the movie, you know, a movie or something where you're going to hold the baby in one arm and fight the doctor off with the other. But <laughs> I mean, you know, maybe you could hold on maybe, really Maybe dear. you could. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, or just put the baby down. Like, I'll be right back. I'll be yeah, right back. yeah. Don't go anywhere. Exactly. Um, I mean, you know, just, just thinking of it from the doctor's perspective and just being completely non-responsive too, to two people yeah. saying, you know, stop, knock it off. And then of course, yelling and screaming and, you know, yeah. nobody coming into the room to see maybe what's going on or is everything okay? Or that, that's just, I mean, yeah. Horrifying. I, I, I hope, I hope, uh, I hope you've gone back and kicked that doctor's ass <laughs> since that experience. Well, like, definitely you know. in my mind. I have. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, and there, you know, he, like there was an intern in the room and it was a she. And I remember looking at her with my eyes and, and I stared at her basically saying with my eyes, help me and stop this. And, you know, so I'm, I think it's really important that I am sharing my personal lived experience because everybody's lived experience is going to be slightly different, but I know we can relate to stories being shared and, um, you know, just to bring that to closure, how it ended was uh, eventually they couldn't figure out what was wrong with me. They were going to um, put me in quarantine. I wasn't allowed to bring my baby with me. Um, and, you know, they weren't recommending that I breastfeed because they, they didn't know what was wrong with me. And so they just pumped me full of saline solution and um, probably glucose, right, to get my electrolytes up and fill me with fluids. And they also weren't giving me any antibiotics because, again, they, they were just floored. They couldn't figure it out. I was an anomaly. Hmm. So um, even still to this day, no, no idea. No idea. I mean, I have my own. I have my own ideas based on my own. Um, maybe it was some kind of maybe it was some kind of parasite in the water of the childbirth. Yeah, yeah. There's a whole other thing to unpack there, but um, it, I have an idea. And but regardless, I checked myself out of the hospital. Yeah. Um, so that's what I did. Huh. It wasn't safe for me to be there. I was. They literally weren't. Were um, very very worried about my health. And weren't sure if I was going to make it. And I um, took the saline solution or whatever, got myself full of fluids. And within 24 hours, I left the hospital and came home. And I was bedridden for two weeks straight, in which I lost everything, like all mucous membrane. Everything was just oozing out of me. I had no control over my bowels. So um, that was my introduction to my postpartum period with my third child and um that was traumatic mm -hmm. i couldn't label it as traumatic until i started writing this book why because i had what's considered to be like cognitive cognitive dissonance 
because I, well, and that goes, this, this part of the story goes into it because I was ashamed um, mm. because um, trauma doesn't happen to me um, because I'm strong enough to heal um, because I didn't want to believe that maybe I had made a wrong choice. So I protected myself from actually compassionately understanding and embracing what was actually happening to me. Instead, I did what athletes do. This is kind of going back to the very beginning. <laughs> I have an incredibly high pain tolerance because I've injured myself a lot over the years. And so I just, you know, kind of scuffed it off. I'm going to be okay. Got to get on with this. I'm not healing fast enough. You know, I've got children. I have two other children that are toddlers that need me. Mm -hmm. um, I don't have time to not be okay. Um, so when I started to understand trauma, which was in about 2010, so eight years ago, you see, back in 2005, we weren't having the discourse about trauma-informed care, right? That language wasn't there. Mm -hmm. we, we had languaging about stress, and we knew the impacts of stress, and we knew the impacts of toxic stress, but nothing was being linked to mental health trauma and stress hmm. and this was back in 2005 yeah back in two th i mean and so for and then you know obviously for centuries nothing was linked so right so in 2010 when i was diagnosed with ptsd for um, other reasons um, i had accumulated stressors that were crashing in on top of themselves traumatic some multiple traumatic events that kind of came all at once, my nervous system went, I can't tolerate this anymore. Right? It completely crashed. Now I go into what trauma is in my book, and I explain it in I believe to be very simple language. Um, but once again, when I was sick in 2010, where I actually um, had a very hard time formulating uh, sentences, mm -hmm. I couldn't remember anything. Um, I couldn't articulate what I was really thinking and feeling. It literally felt like it was coming out like, um, I don't know, like a toddler's <laughs> languaging. Like it, it, I felt so disconnected and so fractured and it felt like my brain was crumbling inside of me. So I thought I had dementia. Wow. Um, this and how long was this going on for? Um, so I would say that uh, I, I would say that I did an incredibly good job of maintaining um, a, what I would consider to be a hypervigilant state of normal existence. You know, felt normal, right? So mm -hmm. I, it felt normal to be constantly revved up, to constantly have my nervous system basically maxed in terms of its stress. And I was and I was highly productive in those states. I was used to operating with an enormous amount of adrenaline in my system. Yeah, yeah. I've actually I was actually talking to my wife about that the other day. Is that people actually get addicted to that kind of thing? It's you know it's common in. Mm -hmm in uh, colleges and universities and things like that. And for students where, you know, they're cramming for tests or they're cramming for projects and papers and things like that. And they get addicted to the, the adrenaline. Uh -huh. So they put it off, put it off, put it off. Cause they feel like they do yeah. a lot better under pressure. That's right. 
Mm-hmm. And that's very true. Um, and, and we could go one step further and say that they've probably experienced that for the majority of their life. Mm-hmm. But we won't go down that road today. Okay. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So, so um, you know, I, we all have what's called a window of tolerance. And uh, Dan Siegel, I don't know if you know who Dan Siegel is. Mm-hmm. Um, he's written a ton of books, um, a specific one I recommend to all parents is called parenting from the inside out. And he has books on brain development, um, for about teenagers and developmental brain for children. Like he's just, he's awesome. Mm-hmm. So he talks about the window of tolerance and, and the Coles notes version on our window of tolerance is basically, um, we come into this world with a, like a, a set, um, a set point in terms of how much stressful information we can tolerate before we're tipped out of balance. And, and again, I'm not going to go into the details of what gives rise to whether or not we have like a nice girth of tolerance or a really short window of tolerance, but regardless, we have a window of tolerance. And so you can imagine that you're taking in stressful information it's coming in, it's coming in, it's coming in. You're tolerating, tolerating, tolerating. Many of us get really used to tolerating at these higher like dysregulated frequencies where we're getting a lot of that adrenaline rush, but we're still functioning, right? We're still functioning. So most of us function in those worlds. Like this is, this is kind of the state of our, of of our kind of common ground world right now is we function in these states of adrenaline and hyper arousal or hypo arousal. So I was in functioning in my window of tolerance for many, many years. And we all have our own coping mechanisms we all we all know what to do to be able to kind of distance ourselves from feeling too much in our system for too long right some of of us work out (laughs) this is where fitness comes in right some of us go to the gym and we move that energy out of our system so that we can take a breathing room sure having that outlet yeah we need to some of us drink wine you know, this, this, <laughs> yeah. this, the whole mummy wine culture, right? Now they have um, wine and yoga together. So now you're combining both worlds. Oh, wow. That's, that's new for me. So <laughs> Maybe that's just a U.S. thing. <laughs> Maybe it is. But, you know, right? Uh, television, Netflix, social media scrolling, yelling mm-hmm. at our kids, going to work can sometimes even just be that. Meaning to just, right? Like for me, I needed to get out of my house. I couldn't be in my house with my children. So if I was out of my house with my children, I could cope. But the minute I came home into my home, I felt overwhelmed, right? Yeah. So those are are like the kind of instinctive things that we might be doing. Obviously, they're not always giving rise to health. Like meditating would be a better option. Yeah, fitness gives rise to health. Yoga gives rise to health, you know. But anyway, so um, basically what happened for me is I just got compounded with um uh, like a stressful experience after stressful experience after stressful experience in which i perceived that i had no control to do anything about it mm-hmm. and my system just flipped out it crashed yeah and we know that when we have far too much adrenaline pumping into our system met with cortisol to try to compromise the amount of adrenaline that's in our system but it's just dumping chemicals into our nervous system and it's going nowhere that this deteriorates brain function we know this now because fmris are showing us this Mm -hmm. 
And so one of the, one of the results of brain deterioration due to the fact that we have far too many stress hormones in our nervous system with nowhere to go. And we have a perception that somehow we can't do anything about it is that we can then start to have the symptoms expressed that we would see in the DSM. So we start to have mental health issues. Wow. I mean, it just shows you the stress impact on right. people and, you know, how many people out there are, you know, you're, you're, you know, we're talking about PTSD. Yes. And so it doesn't matter whether it's from a postpartum experience That's or right. a traumatic life experience, yes. uh, you know, male, female, doesn't matter, you know, it's That's just, right. and how many people, I don't know what the statistics are myself, but how many people are, you know, suffering from some kind of post-traumatic stress disorder. And it's just, you know, yes. The human body is just amazing on how it, how it operates and how it's just basically trying to survive. That's right. And, and how it's trying to, you know, just meet the demands of the environment and just that's keep, right. Keep the system running. A hundred percent. That's right. Yeah. And it will just keep going. I liken it to like the, you know, the, what is it? What is it Duracell battery or the Energizer bunny, you know, the yeah, Energizer the, bunny. Yep. <laughs> and, and the image I always had was like, it's the Energizer bunny that's hitting the wall and it's just going to keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going. Right. Right. <laughs> you can just see it kind of like ramming itself back in. Yeah. Um, that's the image that I get when I think about what happens to our nervous system when it is ramped up with stress chemicals because it's perceiving its environment as a threat to itself. That's what trauma is. Right. So we're talking about trauma and, Mm -hmm. you know, right now this is focused on you, but earlier, you know, we Mm -hmm. were talking about how it can affect dads. And then even Mm -hmm. in, in like that offline conversation that you and I were having, Mm -hmm. um, you're saying that it can affect dads too. I mean, because this, this can happen to men as well. I mean, so some of the things you were listing that, you know, dads can be affected, um, because of witnessing a traumatic birth experience. Right. And also similar to the experience you had, which was a post, you know, postpartum experience. Right. And then feeling lost in the postpartum, um, experience. And then, not knowing how to a support their their partner or their wife mm-hmm. in the immediate postpartum, um, and secondly, not knowing what to do with what it is that they're experiencing because they couldn't do anything about it. So, dads so feeling can, helpless. That's right. So dads dads also then could be having a trauma response because they witnessed something horrifying happening to their loved one. Right. And their loved one was at risk of harm and they couldn't intervene. And what we know, so um, Peter Levine uh, or Levine, I I don't pronounce names always accurately. (laughs) Um, He's like the forefather of the, the physiology of trauma theory. And, you know, he says witnessing an event in which your loved ones were at risk of harm and you couldn't do anything about it is trauma. Yeah. So this is not spoken about in the birthing milieu. So then I know we're coming out, like we're going to run out of time. So, um, and I don't actually spend a lot of time unpacking this in my book because it's specific to moms, but I do, do speak very small. I have a very small little blurb about it because um, if the dad doesn't recognize the symptoms of trauma in himself and he just swallows it, and then disconnects even more, then he's not connecting to his family. 
And now we have relational challenges because the mom feels disconnected, the dad feels disconnected. And one of the primary things that happens when we have too much adrenaline and cortisol pumping into our system is that it compromises the vagal nerve. I don't know if you're familiar with the vagus theory or the vagal theory, but um, the vagal nerve is responsible for social bonding and love. Okay. And biologically, this is considered to be our third branch of the autonomic nervous system. And so when we're in a trauma response, that branch, it's like I imagine it getting clamped. It's like nothing is flowing. <laughs> so nothing's right. flowing to our hearts. And we can't actually flow to our loved ones because when we're in trauma, we are selfish by nature because we need to protect ourselves. We're self-preserving. Right. So now conflict starts to happen between mom and dad in the postpartum period because both of them are trying to sort out what just happened on top of, I'm a new parent, I have a baby that's crying, I need to figure this out, what are we doing, right? All the insecurities that can come with it. So it's just compounding right. <laughs> and already stressful. And it's not something that's like, you know, it might not be something that's kind of clear and cut and dry where it's like, yeah, okay, this is, this is the issue that I got to work yeah. on, right? Because you were saying that before, yeah. you know, going back to your sports yeah. background, you're just kind of like, well, I don't have time yeah. for this. Or, you know, I wasn't really connecting to this. Like, this doesn't happen yeah. to me. You know, and, and you're a woman saying that. I mean, I think it's even more mm. prevalent for a man to say something like that, mm -hmm. right? I mean, I've heard people say, oh, I can't even get him to go to the doctor, yeah. <laughs> you know, to get a, a doctor's visit or something like that. So, you know, I feel like men are more stubborn, you know, t typically in that way than, than women are. So having them come to terms with the fact that there's something for them to work on in that capacity is, is even more challenging. Yeah. So, and then, and then there's creating that separation. So, so what's one mm -hmm. thing? I mean, maybe, I mean, just, just, just having this conversation, mm -hmm. just having this, this podcast out there and bringing awareness mm -hmm. to it is probably at least putting one more option on the table mm -hmm. for people, right? You know, it's like, well, maybe, you know, so if you're looking at your options or what your options are, what the causes mm -hmm. of X, Y, Z could mm -hmm. be, you know, having this and throwing this into the mix can be really, really powerful because now they could start talking to somebody mm -hmm. about, you know, a, a, a trauma right. expert or mm -hmm. something like that and, and getting some help for that. So that's, mm -hmm. That, that's fascinating. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that you think it's fascinating. I, I, I find the language around, like using language such as stress and physiology and our body um, and the impacts that that is having on our mind and our hearts, really accessible. At least it was for me. Because what happened is I no longer considered my, um, what I would call a mental illness, PTSD, right? Like my body, my mind, my brain was sick. Um, mm -hmm. But I understood why and I knew I could do something about it. And that's the difference. I, for the longest time, never wanted to be labeled or diagnosed as having depression, even though it, you know, it runs in my maternal lineage because I was ashamed of it because I believed that there was nothing you could do about it because of the, the kind of modern day conversations around it. To me, yeah. trauma theory has changed the conversation because it's now empowering, because it's physiological, and because you work within a field that really focuses on body health, you know, mm -hmm. you know, and you're doing mind-body health, right? You know how interconnected it all is and how actually empowering it is when we take charge of our health 
And so we have to look at, okay, so how do I get rid of this stressful energy that's stored in my nervous system? What do I need to do? What kind right. of help? What it's kind just, of help do I need? It's not that's a weakness. No. It's not a weakness. It's just like, you know, it's just something else to tackle in your life. It, you know? It's not a weakness. It's, it's more of a weakness to ignore it. Right. Right. Yeah, and, absolutely. and yeah, it does involve needing to feel our feelings because in that moment there was terror right? So both people would have felt terror and fear. And that terror needs to move through the body and be discharged. Right. Mm-hmm. And so we don't have time to get into all of that. But um, there's lots I could say about that in terms of empowering yeah. dads to be able to do something about this, because when they do, it's going to enrich their lives and their relationships. And to me, that is so important right now on this planet is to have healthy relationships. Yeah. Well, I mean, what's one thing, you know, to, to throw out there for dads that they can do? Well, so two things. <laughs> First of all, um, knowledge is powerful. So, so learning about this is really empowering. I think that's really important. And the more you understand it, the more willing you are to do something about it. So that means your guards will start to soften a bit, right? Um, mm-hmm. So get, get knowledgeable. Um, secondly, um, find... And there's a lot of knowledge in the book. There is a lot of knowledge in the book. I do, I do unpack this in the book that I think even would be beneficial for dads to be able to understand either A, what happened for them, and B, what might have happened for their partner, and then how to nice. support them, right? I right. think it's really yeah, important that we understand what's going on and so that we don't continue to shame or label each other. Yeah. So getting knowledge is super important. Um, and then I'm just going to end on this. There is so much information today on the power of mindful attention and meditation being one of those skills, um, to be able to move all of this material, all of this stressful material. So I just want to add that piece too. Okay. So adding some mindfulness in Mm -hmm, there too. mm -hmm. Yeah. Mind training stuff, right? So listening to an app, um, brainwave, like kind of moving into altered altered states with um different apps that help you get there so i know we're i know we're out of time so i'm just, <laughs> I'm just throwing those out there no that's no this is great um all right so tell everybody where they can find um before we before we wrap up and i have some questions for you that, as i do with the end of every show but just tell everybody where they can find more about you more about the book where they can order the book mm. from um so yeah, tell everybody how they can connect with you and, and a little bit more about the book. Sure. So um, you can definitely go to my website, which is my name, jennifersummerfelt.com. Um, you'll notice when you go to my website on the front, um, you can actually um, sign up for a four-part video series in which I actually unpack this even more. Um, so if people are interested in learning more about um, the physiology of mental health then that's um, and postpartum mental health, then that's a, that's a good option. You can purchase my book online at amazon.com or .ca. Uh, just put in healing after birth. You can also purchase my book through my website. Um, at, and you would find that uh, at the top of my website under the book. And I think that's all you had asked me, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then um, I'm actually on the website oh. now. So, you, you know, you have an Instagram logo, you have a Facebook logo, right. so people can connect with you on Instagram and Facebook as yes. well. Yes, yes. Yeah. And so that four parts of video series for anyone listening is you scroll all the way down to the bottom and it's on the right hand side and it's a four part free video series. And then, um, 
definitely check that out. I mean, why not, right? <laughs> Thank you. That's right. Why not? <laughs> yeah. yeah, why not? Yeah. Uh, and I would also so... recommend, you know, if, you know, obviously the majority of the population listening to your podcast are men and dads, I would encourage them to share this with their partners or their wives and um, have a conversation about it and ask their wife or their partner, you know, what was your birth experience really like? Mm-hmm. You know? That'll be a great question for guys mm-hmm. to open yeah, up with. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Not how are you doing in the postpartum. But, yeah. yeah, yeah, right. No, but absolutely. I mean, it is a great conversation to have. And especially if, if for anybody listening out there that, you know, they did have a traumatic experience and maybe this conversation mm-hmm. and this interview brings light to that. And, you know, maybe you buy the book for your, for mm-hmm. your partner, or your spouse, because it's going to support mm-hmm. them um, and maybe support both of you together. So yeah. um I think that's great. I'm really, really grateful that you were able to, uh, to be on the show, but I do have 10 questions for you as I end the show. Um, with every guest, uh, these questions were inspired by James Lipton and Bernard Pivot. So uh-huh. you ready? Uh, number one, who is your hero? <laughs> Why are these questions going to take me a long time? <laughs> who is my hero? Mm, my children. What excites you? Talking about these things, talking about physiology, talking about healing. What turns you off? Um, people who are unplugged, the world that um, the, the world that feels numb and dead and, and like just distracted. What is your favorite sound? Binaural beats. what is your least favorite sound chalkboard scratching (laughs) that's a a good one what is your favorite quote or saying Mm. our past informs our present until we become conscious of it and that is by joe dispensa i like Mm -hmm. that in in a couple words what should a dad be? Plugged in to their family. In a couple words, what should a dad not be? Disconnected and angry. If you could try any other profession, what would it be? Um, the other day I told my daughter I think I'd be a surgeon. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and finally what would you like to be remembered Mm. for helping mothers and families come home to their hearts that's Mm -hmm. beautiful very nice jennifer thank you so much for coming on the warrior dads podcast it was great having you on i love the conversation Mm. definitely eye-opening um yes thank you Mm. so much and and congratulations on the new book uh, I wish you uh, wish you the best. Thank with it. you. I really appreciate it being here. And I, I would just love to hear any feedback that you have. Or if there's any questions that come through, please feel free to send them my way. Oh, I definitely mm-hmm. will. Yeah, Absolutely. wonderful. And you're doing great work. Thank you so much, Jim. Oh, thank you for that. <laughs> All right. You have too. A good day. Bye-bye. Hey, guys. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Warrior Dads podcast. If you like this podcast and want to support it, please subscribe, leave comments, and share it with someone you think would benefit from listening as well. 
Thanks again, and keep on being a warrior dad.